Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. This is your sound check. What'd you have for breakfast? I had smoked salmon, roasted potato, and avocado. You are a chef. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm, The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. This week, summer in Florida means our choices of local produce are getting kind of thin. We talk to the executive chef of Tampa's Oxford Exchange and get his ideas on using summer fruits and veggies. Plus, it has to have some scarves. That's okay. Perfection has a cost and is very high. Are we talking life or mangoes? Or is it the same thing? We have a fascinating discussion with a philosophical mango expert who explains why Floridians are so enchanted with the fruit. Only in South Florida would someone ask, what's your favorite mango, and get a response. In mid-July, thousands of visitors attended the International Mango Festival near Miami to sample mangoes, listen to lectures, and buy trees. Our correspondent, Janet Keeler, was there, and she takes us behind the scenes of the festival at Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden in Coral Gables for a conversation with Norris Ledesma, the curator of tropical fruit at Fairchild. The Colombian-born scientist explains why mangoes are such an important crop for Florida and lets Janet sample some truly rare varieties, including one that is extinct in the wild. We have been promoting mangoes for a reason. Mangoes are uh, very adaptable. They are strong trees, even though then they are not from the Americas. They can travel and move from the tropics to the subtropics. And the farmers can use the worst land they have in terms of rocky soils, sandy soils. Then they cannot grow uh, vegetables, perhaps, or they cannot grow avocados, and they, they are more demanding in conditions, growing conditions, but they can use it for mangoes. Mm-hmm. So this is the beauty of this crop. They need very little. They need almost no water. One of the requests is, I would like to have a mango for more than just a month. What I'm going to do with all this fruit is so abounded. So what I'm going to do, my freezer is full. So we create um, a choices. We call it the curator choices. And there are mangoes that are very early here in South Florida. So you can have a mango tree that is going to bear in May. And then you have a month later, you have another one. You enjoy that one. And next month, you have another. You can extend season, the season of mangoes here in South Florida with different cultivars for four and five mm. months. So, so Indians that have moved to South Florida or Dominicans or Haitians or people from the islands, these fruits that they find here, they're a taste of home t- for them, aren't they? 
Yeah, but the first, uh, they th the mangoes arrived uh, to the islands in the Caribbean that you mentioned, and also to the Americas. They came from India. Mm -hmm. And the, the first, ma it was two movements in about 1700s, probably. One went from India to the north, uh, and they reached uh, La Española first, here in the Caribbean. And they moved to all the islands, inclu including Cuba, Jamaica, and they reached also the Keys here in South Florida. And finally, uh, Florida, the peninsula of Florida. That was with the pirates in about 1700s. So they brought the turpentine mango. There are some of these tiny mangoes with a lot of fiber that people, sometimes they don't like it because they have this aftertaste. Uh, but it has a lot of importance in terms of heritage today, and I will explain it. These tiny mangoes um, are polyembryonic. That means that one seed can generate more than one seedling. And they are very prolific. So all these seeds that came with the pirates, they just germinate while here in mm -hmm. South Florida. Uh, there are some old trees that can tell this story, mm -hmm. and they are in Pine Island in the other coast. So then in about 1900s, in early 1900s, Dr. David Fairchild went to India, and he brought 36 mango trees already grafted. But in those days, Miami was almost a swamp. It was no conditions to grow them. So just one survived, and that was the Mulgova tree. The Mulgova tree was planted in one of these uh, backyards in Coconut Grove. And the tree grew and bloomed during the winter time, which is usual. Um, change with the turpentine that arrived 300 years ago. Nobody paid attention. The Mulgova produced fruit, and the fruit fell in the ground and created a lot of seedlings under the canopy. Mm. One of those babies grew, mature, produced fruit, and time passed by, and the owner of the tree went outside looking for the mango fruit. But mango that she recalled was yellow skin, not that big, mm -hmm. but this one was completely different. It was a fleshy, colorful, red mango, and she didn't recognize that uh, as a mango. So she took the fruit, took it inside of the house, shared it with her husband, and he came and see if that was a vine or <laughs> something that was growing in the tree. And no, that was a mango. So uh, this family that I'm talking about is the Hayden family. And that's our Hayden mango. And after that, everybody was just crazy looking for another discovery like <laughs> Hayden. And they uh, start all these aficionados creating all these beautiful mangoes that we have today. So we have a collage of mangoes that is the heritage from the mango that was brought by the pirates in 1700s that cross their genes with the mango that survived that Dr. David Fairchild brought back. So we have Tommy Atkins, Ken, Kit. All these are part of this story. Same. Flavor is so attached with the roots, the environment. Now, for example, this year, our mangoes are not that good. We have a very raining, it rained almost every week. When we had the blooming, 
we lost the majority of the crop because of the raining season. And and it came so early. We are uh, o- almost no mangoes in the trees right now. And this is supposed to be the peak of the season. Mm-hmm. That's why we choose Mango Festival in the second weekend of July. But now with the weather that you never know what is going to happen, everything is moving late, early, then it's not the same anymore. This is the other reality that we are dealing because the global uh, warming is a reality and things are changing and it's more challenged uh, in these days and in the future days to produce our food. And the most important thing for this crop for me it is put us together. In, we can melt celebrating with mangoes. It doesn't matter the language you speak. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter the country you are coming from. Everybody just get together, share the recipes, stories, memories. That's what we need. It is just bad news almost all the time. Then we need something good. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's right. I believe. I, that's why I love mangoes so much. So working with all these mangoes, I get attached to them. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to mix, I think, in my mind, and I can mix the genes with this flavor, and I can dream about it. And for example, here I have the blue mango. Um, it is super early. And it's blue when it's in the tree because it has a natural coat. It's like a wax. Uh, and when you see in the tree, it's not shiny like this. Uh, and, and it fits in the palm of your hand, doesn't it? Small. It's very small. Uh, these are the mangoes. Uh, the wild mangoes, normally they are not large. They are mm-hmm. small. We select the mangoes and we improve them. Humans, we did it for many generations. But this is how it started. Mm-hmm. This is the ancestors, uh, ancestors of the mango. It is um, dark purple. And inside it is, um, I'm going to cut the mango so you can see it. It is. Always have a lot of juice on your hands when you're cutting mangoes, yes. right? <laughs> you know Beautiful. what? There's, uh, I, I enjoy when I see videos that they get so complicated to teach how to eat a mango. And I just get messy and I go to the sink and I like to be with my face all <laughs> yellow. I don't mind that. But I have to be more sophisticated and try to <laughs> teach people another ways to do it. So because they are not that wild like I am. So I'm cutting this like well, like a flower because when they are mm-hmm. small and they have fiber, you can smell it and try to describe how it, the smell is very different. It's very different, isn't it? It has kind of an earthy taste, almost, I mean, smell. It's almost like, um, I want to say sour, but it's something. Yeah, I this one say. is from Borneo, and is extinct in the wild. Oh, okay. So now it's, uh, they have another relatives that look similar. But this particular species, this is Mangifera casturi, mm-hmm. is extinct in the wild. And we are using the pollen of this mango to cross it with the mangoes that we have today to create a mango that is more resistant to diseases. Um, the skin is very thick. Mm, mm-hmm. This is good for chipping. Oh. So it can handle chipping better. So um, that's a problem too, and uh, uh, a challenge with a lot of the mangoes that they don't ship well. So that's why we find them here in South Florida and maybe not in a lot of other places. 
Correct. So it's very important when you are um, trying to develop a mango for the industry, what is needed. So one characteristic is the skin. And color of the skin is also very important. Uh, yellow or light skin, it shows the imperfections of nature. It can be latex that they get a stain. It can be a scarf from a branch that just fell off. Anything, and they get rejected. Mm. The rejections for yellow mango skin is about 40%. Farmers lost about 40% of their crop because they have imperfections. They get rejected. We have to learn more about all these issues and understand that nature is that way. That's that it make it so beautiful. It has to have some scars. That's okay. Perfection has a cost. And it's very high. And I'm, I really mean it because our farmers are losing 40% of their crop mm -hmm. after they are taking care of uh, the fruit for over a year. It's more than that because they start producing by the year five. Mm -hmm. And then they have the crop. They are going to sell it and they get rejected because they have a scar. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it's very important that our community understand what is happening. But it's, it takes time. And we don't have time. So we have to create a mango that it fits with all these requirements. So it is better a mango that has a dark skin so it can camouflage all these imperfections. If you have a, a stain or a scarf in a mango that is almost black, it doesn't matter. But the purple mango is a mango that I would like to create because in people's mind means healthy. It means antioxidant. It means and um, is good for your skin. So you're just I'm just gonna bite into this. Yes. Okay. And wait a little bit. It is nothing that you taste before. It has a little bit of, uh, it is sweet, right? It's very sweet. Mm -hmm. Not at first. At first it's like, hmm, it's a little different, like a little earthy, uh, maybe tasting a little bit of pear in there. Okay. Some apple Take maybe. <laughs> oh, you're getting messy I'm now. getting messy now, <laughs> down my chin. Vanilla? Oh, very good. You are good. <laughs> you should be part of my group of yeah, tasting I'd fruits. I'd <laughs> love to. <laughs> Can That's you good. sense a little bit of um, lychees? Yes, a little bit of lychees. Yes, and that's a very different flavor. Not everybody mm. knows that flavor. Yeah, I see that. I taste that now that you say it. What about passion fruit? Yeah, it has everything in it, doesn't it? You see? Yeah, yeah. But it's very, it's got a big pit, a big seed to it, right? So there's not a lot of meat on it. Yeah. So maybe that would dissuade someone too. But boy, the flavor is tremendous. Yeah, when I have it in season, I have to take them away from my mom. She can eat them all. Oh, my God. This is mango madu. Madu in Malaysian language means uh, honey mango. Mm. I'm going to show you why they call it the honey mango. And this one's green and a little bit more what we might see in the grocery store, the size and the shape, right? It's yeah. a, a, it looks a little bit more familiar. More familiar, mm. but never gets color in the skin always green so mm -hmm. you don't know when it's ready and how do you know when it's ready if the if the if you can't tell it by sight you touch it mm -hmm. and it's not like a rock it's getting softer mm -hmm. but no mushy so that's the perfect time to mm -hmm. do it this is very common people then 
uh, go for vacations to Indonesia, like Bali, and visit the, the markets. It has a very high price in the market. People value this fruit a lot. They call it the mango madu mm -hmm. or the honey mango. Mm. So you've given me a little piece you've dug out of that middle part, the little darker part in the middle. There's no fiber in it. It's much, uh, it's much more subtle, isn't it? It's not as sweet as the other one from Borneo. Not as sweet. I oh. think it tastes honey. See? And you do taste honey. Ah, uh, okay. Wow. Good. Wow, that's, so that's very, why they you know. call it the honey mango. So there's, how many mangoes do you grow here at Fairchild? Different kinds. Um, mango, the regular mango, Mangifera Indica, we have 600 different cultivars. Besides the 600 different mango cultivars that we have, we have 35 Mangifera species. They are the fathers and the grandfathers <laughs> of the mango that you recall. And we want all this gene pool to create new mangoes. Well, thank you very much for spending all this time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That was Janet Keeler speaking with Norris Ledesma, curator of tropical fruit at Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden in Coral Gables. Architectural Digest named it the most beautiful independent store in Florida. Tampa's Oxford Exchange was originally built in 1891, and today it serves as a mixed-use building containing a bookstore, a coffee shop, co-working space, and more, all while retaining over a century of charm with exposed brick, natural light, and details like vintage horseshoes that were unearthed during renovations. A big part of its appeal is the restaurant, offering what it calls fresh, simple meals that feature the best seasonal, local, and organic ingredients. At the helm is Richard Anderson, who recently sat down with the Zest producer, Delia Cologne, to share his culinary journey from dishwasher to executive chef. He also shares creative ways to use Florida's limited summer produce, including an appetizer recipe from the Oxford Exchange menu. My name is Richard Anderson, and I'm the executive chef at the Oxford Exchange restaurant in Tampa. For people who have not had the fortune of visiting Oxford Exchange, how do you describe it? It's not just a restaurant. Right. It's, it's a lot more than just a restaurant. And the uh, joke is when I hire somebody, I tell them to come into the building, find the restaurant, and ask for me, and it always throws everybody off. What do you mean, find the restaurant? Uh, but yeah, we're a multi-use space. There's a coffee bar, tea bar, retail shop, Wilbury Parker, eyeglasses, and a full-service restaurant. And it's just a beautiful space. I mean, the, the aesthetic of it, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it. You've got like the exposed brickwork. What are some of the features that people are drawn to? Just like you said, I mean, there's a lot of history in the building. A lot of the brick was recovered from the original uh, building. The natural lighting, I think, is amazing. That's a huge draw for me every day. I love all the natural light um, and the staircase. Everybody loves the staircase with all the historic photos on it. And they take pictures up there, and I think that's a huge draw, too. And the bathrooms are gorgeous. Yeah, I only go in the men's bathroom, but I heard the women's bathroom's great, too. Oh, yeah, I don't know what's going on in yeah. the men's, but the women's, you could, like, I could live in there. Yeah. Um, I like coming here because I have little kids, okay. and it makes me feel like 
I'm adulting, but it's still kid-friendly, and I don't have to worry about them, like, breaking something. Why do you think um, kind of the feel of a restaurant matters? Because, of course, the food matters. I could order French fries from many different places, but I'd rather eat French fries here. Yeah. I, I just think the building is comfortable for everybody. I think no matter you know, financial status or, or whatever you have going on. I, we see every walk of life come into this building and everybody enjoys the same experience. They have sometimes a lot of people just come in just for coffee and to read the paper on a rainy day and people watch other people in, do the entire experience. They shop at the bookshop, they go to Warby Parker, then they have lunch and then they go to the retail. <laughs> so some people really make a day out of it. We, you know, jokingly, we, we love to refer ourselves as like Disney World. Like people come in and they spend the whole day here. It is. Going to get some glasses, order a scone, get some work done, check my email. All right, let's talk about you. Okay. You're the executive chef. How'd you get into this? Like, let's go back. How'd I get into cooking? Yep, let's go all the way back. All the way back. So, rode my bike to the nicest restaurant in my hometown of South Florida, uh, knocked on the back door and looked for a dishwashing job. Um, So, that's how I started, washing dishes and worked my way up uh, through basically every position in the kitchen, through prep work and through line cooking and sous chef and, you know, executive chef all the way up. How old were you, and is that restaurant still around? I was 14. Um, The restaurant is not around, but uh, it was around all the way up until about 2008, I believe. Wow. What's the name of it? Uh, It was called the Cabana Bistro. Cabana Bistro. So you're from South Florida. What town? Uh, it's a real small beach town called Hope Sound, Florida, but no one's really ever heard of it, so I tell everybody West Palm Beach. <laughs> I understand right. that. Yeah. <laughs> I take too long to explain it. What are some of your early food memories growing up in South Florida? Like, were you the kid with the mango tree in the backyard and that sort of thing? Yeah, South Florida. I mean, we got, we got it all. So uh, definitely grew up with a big fishing, hunting background myself. Um, lived on the water. Uh, that was just a big part of our life growing up. So my first kind of real memories in the kitchen, the chef at the time would buy whole fish from a local spear fisherman that lived on the street. So he'd pull up with his boat in the back of the restaurant. He was a licensed dealer, but we would buy whatever he caught for the day. Uh, so sometimes it was fresh full of lobster. A lot of times it was grouper that he'd spear. And even though I was young, I had a big fishing background. So I already knew how to break down and process all the fish. So that was my job. I'd go in see what was in his big cooler uh, on ice, and then usually that would be what was on the menu for that night, and I'd break it down and portion it and save the best part for me to eat later. Yeah. <laughs> smart. Yeah. You, and you are smart. You were self-taught as a chef? Yeah, uh, didn't go to culinary school. Um, kind of figured it out as I went, but had really good uh, mentors and stuff along the way. I haven't worked at a huge variety of restaurants, but I was really lucky. I just think the the mentorship that I had and the, and the caliber of chefs that I worked under, maybe they weren't, you know, recognized throughout the country but they were very good as well as just you know very much a self-taught so it's always been a passion of mine so i've picked up really quick uh, there's so many learning tools out there for everybody now with youtube and all this kind of stuff you can really cut down on your own learning time um, but yeah definitely learned in the kitchen coming up wow i watch youtube videos but but i am working at oxford exchange as the executive yeah. chef what advice would you have for somebody who maybe wants to get into this field and doesn't have the training uh, do your homework and start at a, at a restaurant you really like and respect. I think um, don't settle for the first thing that comes along. Try and really find somewhere that you're passionate about and that you really think would be a great opportunity to work there. And, and lay all your cards out. Let them know you don't have a lot of experience. Let them know that you are willing to try and it's a passion of yours and you're willing to do it. I, I bet 
so many chefs would agree. I'd rather just lay all your cards out in the first, you know, 10 minutes and, and let's just get it out there because if you need to learn how to do all this stuff, as long as I know that going in, we're great. I've hired people with no kitchen experience ever to work at one of the busiest restaurants in Tampa. As long as I know that going in, then we can start from there instead of having all these expectations. And then clearly you lied to me during the interview. Yeah, you don't want the guy talking about making these fancy lobster dinners and he like... Somebody tells me like how great they are on any station. I'm like, oh boy, here we go again. Like Mr. Skeptical comes out. <laughs> that's, that's true for a lot of fields. Yeah. All right, so how'd you make your way from South Florida up to Tampa and Oxford Exchange? So moved up here. My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, went to the University of Tampa. So I moved up here when she graduated. Right across the street. Right across, conveniently, who would have known at the time? And started working at a local country club here in South Tampa and worked there for a few years and then um, got the opportunity to see the Oxford Exchange before it was open. It was still very much under construction. And, you know, lucky me, I saw it when it was still dirt on the floors, the kitchen wasn't installed. It was very much, you know, a construction site and just kind of fell in love with what it probably was going to be. And I had never seen anything like it either. It was this giant building that was going to have all these other, uh, you know, things to do in there and roll the dice and just decided, you know what, let's, let's take the opportunity as a line cook. I didn't start as executive chef. Wow. Good move on your part. Being in Florida your whole life. I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but I'm from Ohio and so I can notice little differences in the way, you know, people cook and the way people eat up north versus down here. Do you feel like there's a, um, a typical Florida customer? Is there something people are looking for either when they live in Florida or when they come here maybe to vacation? I definitely think the vacationers expect seafood. I think if they're landlocked in the middle of the country, I think they just assume every restaurant in Florida is a seafood restaurant because we're surrounded by water on three sides. Uh, so I definitely feel that from you know the people that travel through seasons um as far as the typical florida food i don't think i don't know that we have a typical florida food i think there's people from everywhere uh we're lucky enough to be able to get pretty much any product that we want so i think there's tons of variety what advice would you offer someone um ordering seafood i would say if if you're gonna order seafood you're gonna want to stick with the, the clean white fish. I don't think you're going to want to jump into crab necessarily, or maybe like salmon or something that some people sometimes think has like a fishy, oily flavor. I would say if you're new to seafood, stick with uh, local, you know, snapper, grouper, mahi, something that's pretty easy. Uh, and I would definitely say if it's your first time and you're skeptical, go fried. Just crispy, crunchy, dip it in whatever you want. Everything tastes good fried. Yeah, you can't really mess that up. Yeah. Once it's fried, it's fried. It's, it all tastes great. You don't know what it is. Is it alligator? Is it a yeah. french fry? You're going to be good. Nobody knows. Now, let's talk about Florida produce. We're in summer right now. What's in season? I just had a peach, just a peach that I bought from the grocery mm-hmm. store, and it tasted like heaven because it's peach season. Yeah. Um, what are you into right now? So Florida, uh, I mean, I actually, as a hobbyist, like had gardens basically everywhere that I've lived. So I've grown basically not everything, but a, a good amount of stuff. Florida's growing season short and it's tough. Uh, so we're lucky enough. I mean, it's seasoned somewhere, everywhere. We can always get stuff from even around the country if it's not in season in Florida. Um, what I like in the summer is, is kind of like your normal Florida produce. Like I love watermelon when they're really good in June, July, August. Uh, I can always tell when it's watermelon season because they're 
everywhere. They're in like these big end caps of the store for like three bucks. Or they're on like a pickup truck on the yeah, side of the road. see them on 95 and 75, just cruising down, going to wherever it is they're going. Okay, let's talk about watermelon okay. because who doesn't love watermelon? It's so summery. Yeah, we and can't be friends if you don't like watermelon. <laughs> it's so ref- Okay, then we can be friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so refreshing. But I get this huge watermelon and I hate cutting it up. Yeah. It's such a pain. And then I feel like we just can't eat it fast enough, even though we love it. What else can we do with it? I don't personally have that problem because once the watermelon's open, I eat it all up. But I understand. So one of the things that I've always done with it, I love exercise and working out as a hobby of mine outside of here. So one of the things we'll always do, if you have extra watermelon or it's on sale and you buy a couple, I always chunk it up and freeze it. And then after a hard workout and you sweat it a ton, I make smoothies out of it. So I'll do watermelon, lemon, mint, and like pink, like Himalayan sea salt. And it almost makes like your own Gatorade. Ooh, that's good. So Electrolytes. Really good. You got sugars right after your workout. You got a little bit of salts. It tastes awesome. It's not fake sugar. That's one of my favorite ways to use it up, even though I think a lot of people know to make watermelon juice. I love it. When you said you like exercise, I thought you were going to suggest lifting the watermelon. No. Like resistance training. No, definitely like actual exercise. They're both good. You lift it and then you drink it. It's hey, a two for one. Any other tips for watermelon or other summery produce? Watermelon goes great with basil, with mint, with certain cheeses. Yeah. Let's talk more about the basil mint cheese situation. What kind of cheese are we talking? And is it like a watermelon salad or are we putting it on a skewer? They pair well together. So watermelon and feta is a pretty classic combination. It's a little bit of salty sweet. Old school Southerners, they always put salt on their watermelon, so it kind of plays off that. My mom always did that, too. Halloumi's a, a firm, like semi-firm cheese that you could actually grill. Uh, halloumi and watermelon go really good together with basil and balsamic. Anything that you could do that would, would play off that sweet, salty would probably work for you. And fresh herbs, in my opinion, can really kind of go with a, a lot of stuff. You know, you could put fresh mint and watermelon, basil, watermelon, cilantro, watermelon, um, you're, you're pretty safe. Mm, that's right up my alley. Margaritas. Margaritas. You cannot go wrong. Definitely. How about mangoes? Mangoes. I treat them like dessert. Like once they're really that good, I love just cutting them up and eating them and kind of just having the great mango all by itself. But uh, same idea. You can make mango salads. You could do, I I'm, I'm personally don't do it a lot, especially at the restaurant, but um, seafood and mango goes really well together. It's a pretty classic pairing. Shrimp and mango salsa or fish and mango salsa a lot of people do that why don't you do it even though it's really classic i i don't personally really enjoy it i know it works well and people love it it's just more of a personal thing okay how about one more how about what can we do with corn on the cob it's great just straight off the cob but i'm glad you said that because a lot of people don't really realize when corn is really really good and sweet and from the store it's amazing raw and and i don't think i didn't say anything about raw (laughs) now that's crazy talk if you try corn when it's really fresh and it's in the height of season and you cut it off the cob, it is sweet like candy and you don't have to cook it. You can and it's still great, but I love to char it, mix it with black bean and tacos, uh, breakfast skillets if that's something that you're into with fresh veggies and onions and kale and all that egg. Corn, I think you so universal you could you know, do anything with it. What if you just have too much of something? I don't know. Do you run into this problem as a chef? Like there, It's like feast or famine. There are times when you have a ton of something. There are times when you don't have any. How do you kind of plan for that? 
On the restaurant side, you just order smart. So if you have way too much, shame on you, you probably should have backed it down. At home, I totally understand it. You buy this stuff, it's on sale, it looks great, your eyes are bigger than your stomach, you were hungry when you got there. If you feel like it's starting to go bad, don't be afraid. You know, one of my biggest things, we light the grill at home, I'm gonna load the grill up. I'm not gonna light the grill and put one corn on the cob and one chicken breast. So if you have all that and maybe you're into meal prepping and you start to feel like your produce is starting to kinda reach that time where you gotta make a decision, saute it all off roast it all off grill it all off saute it freeze it um, th there's a lot of different options for you as long as you're willing to put in a little bit of the work to save it uh, i think you're good mm -hmm. but once it's kind of going like in that direction where you got to make a move once you cook it then you're good for another few days after that whereas it probably would have got mushy and rotten and whatever is this a good time to pickle things so this is a great question uh, when people sometimes like buy too much stuff. Maybe they bought too many cucumbers, too many onions, too many whatever, green beans, asparagus. I love to pickle anything and everything. It's one of my favorite flavors. I don't have a big sweet tooth, so anytime it's acidic and salty and crunchy, I love it. So yeah, pickle everything. We pickle onions and shallots and jalapenos and all kinds of stuff here at the restaurant too. What's the easiest, like laziest way to pickle something? Buying vinegar, rice vinegar is one that I like to use. Uh, adding a little bit of sugar and salt, cut up whatever it is you want to pickle and put it in a jar, pour the brine over it and just let it sit in the fridge. How long? Depends on what you got going on. Uh, it could be anywhere, you know, 10 minutes, like a quick pickle on like an onion. Or if you're trying to make sour pickles out of cucumbers, you know, you're into a week or more. Okay, 10 minutes. I'm here for that. I can do yeah, that. You can pickle some onions and they'll be great on salads. I'll be a, I'll be a superhero to my family yeah. and then put it on a salad. What about the other veggies? Are you just eating them raw? What are we doing once they're pickled? Oh, once they're pickled? Like, I know in, in our house, we used to pickle asparagus and green beans, use them in Bloody Marys as like garnish instead of celery. Irish family, we like to drink. <laughs> this, there's Mary. no judgment yeah. here. No <laughs> this is a safe space. listening, right? Uh, so once they're pickled, I love them on salads. I'm a big snacker on the couch, and I don't really have a sweet tooth, lucky me. Uh, so I'd love to just eat pickled vegetables for them being pickled vegetables. Uh, and adds a lot of flavor to tacos, to sandwiches, to you know anything like that. My kids would like that, too. Definitely. We got to talk about avocados. Yep. I'm not really good at growing things, but I put a pit in some dirt and now I actually have a legit little avocado tree. What can I do with it? Well, you can have an avocado in like 25 years probably from now and it'll be a homegrown avocado and it'll be great. My grandchildren will enjoy guacamole. Yes, you'll be gone and they'll have their first avocado. Okay, in the meantime, I'll go to the grocery store okay. or the farmer's market, buy some avocados. What can we do with them? One of the recipes that we did a couple of years ago, and it's still on our menu today, is fried avocado wedges. So basically cutting them when they're ripe into finger-shaped size and lightly breading them in like panko Japanese breadcrumb and then lightly frying them and just using them as like a dip. Uh, very tasty, not that hard to do. So I think it's thinking outside the box a little bit. Can you take an avocado, make it crispy, and they're already so fatty and delicious already. So it's like a chip. It's, it's, I mean, it's still an avocado, so it's crunchy on the outside, soft on the inside. But avocados are so nice and so fatty. We use a little sambal sour cream, so like a spicy sour cream. And it's basically think avocado french fry. Mmm, yes, yes. How can that be bad? Well, Chef Richard Anderson of Oxford Exchange, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is fun. Thanks. 
That was Delia Cologne speaking with Richard Anderson, executive chef of Tampa's Oxford Exchange. Richard shared his recipe for fried avocado wedges, and you can find it on our website, thezestpodcast.com. Thanks so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, rate us on iTunes and subscribe. We've also got a great newsletter with cooking tips and recipes and links to our stories, and you can subscribe to that through our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Robin Sussingham. Delia Cologne and I produce The Zest with help from Megan Tremble, Mark Hayes, and Craig George. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media. Mm-hmm.